ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 33, Meaning Behind the Moko. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Nick, I0B0 and Liam. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time. We talked about Europeans in regards to Tāmoko, discussing a bit about what they thought of it, what they had seen and written down, as well as some of the stories of the Europeans who were tattooed, consensually or otherwise. This time, we will discuss what Moko meant to Māori, in terms of what the motifs indicated, and generally why they would want to put themselves under this large amount of injury and duress for something that, at first glance, only has cosmetic ramifications. This is such a large and regionally specific topic that we aren't really going to cover all of it in any great level of detail, I'm afraid. The information is out there, and I do encourage you to seek it out if you want to know more. Just note that what we talk about here is a surface-level look, more so than probably any other episode we have done thus far. For example, there are entire books just on the different motifs various European explorers wrote about, Detailing what they looked like, sometimes with sketches, what they meant, what region they saw them in, and so on. As much as I would like to recount these books in detail, it probably wouldn't make for a hugely interesting episode, so we'll keep it a bit higher level. Before we can really understand what the motifs meant though, we really have to understand what moko means to Māori back in the pre-European era. We already know that moko was started in the teens, and at least some was needed to be considered a full adult and be eligible for marriage. We also know that moko was highly prized as people would travel long distances to be tattooed by a particular person, along with the fact that it had a great cost in material wealth as well. In fact, moko could be so highly prized that we hear of a man called Rauri Te Motueri of Pukitapu Hapu of Tiatiawa Iwi. He actually took a gourd and made a mask out of it to cover his face and protect the skin of his moko. This seems to have been mostly used when travelling, but was also brought out for festive occasions as well, because it was decorated with feathers at the side and actually had an exact replica of his moko carved onto it. For men, moko was a sign of martial strength, mana, and his virility, all of which was attractive to the opposite sex and garnered much respect from comrades in arms. To let it fade later in life and not have it redone would cause these traits to diminish in himself. A person from Nati Maniapoto Iwi covered this quite well in the saying, quote, No mura e pāma, i taia ayaku reherehe, ka pai o te haere, i te one e te piu. Tis long since, o sirs, when my buttocks were decorated, and I strode proudly along the beach at Tepu. Clearly, it was a point of pride to be tattooed, and to let it fall into disrepair kind of showed the sort of person you were. For men, moko was also something to be used to look intimidating for battle, not only showcasing how hard you were, having undergone so much pain to get the tattoos, but the moko itself would show off your whakapapa and achievements. In fact, it was said that full-body moko looked like the person was still wearing clothes, or pantaloons as Europeans sometimes mention, when referencing the legs. 
This was also seen on the battlefield, as some soldiers preferred to strip down to the minimal amount of clothing as an intimidation tactic, part of which was showing off their tattoos. In saying that though, there were some European military men that weren't phased by it, such as Lieutenant Colonel Godfrey Munday, who said, quote, There are even in these islands some fat or jovial faces that this savage operation fails to invest with ferocity, end quote. I guess no matter what you do, sometimes you can just never look tough. Whakapapa is often what you will hear Moko represents. It tells the story of that person's lineage, but it also tells the story of their own whakapapa. What I mean is that it tells how that person got to where they are now, with Moko often being added to over the years as a person gained various achievements, commands, or inherited some sort of status, such as being considered a tonga of a particular profession. This, along with the fact that facial shape changed what a tattoo would look like, meant that Moko was so unique to a single person that the primary way of identifying a figure in a carving was through their Moko. In general, Moko was meant to make someone look more attractive, as we have mentioned, as well as more appealing as warriors, dancers, and lovers. One woman even made a waiata that laments not being able to have the man of her dreams. In the song, she mentions her desirable characteristics, I guess kind of like Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy. Ooh, that's a bit of a dated reference. In the song, the woman specifically mentions her moko as being one of her desirable traits, so obviously it was something she valued highly, and thought potential partners would value highly too. Part of this need to look attractive may have also led to the tattooing of one's, uh, junk. And not just by men, but women as well. Though, they didn't use the chisel method, they tended to use methods that involved dragging the implement across the skin, so it wouldn't result in the classic groove we have seen on facial moko. Clearly, men weren't that keen to be permanently grooved for her pleasure. Elston Best also writes, quote, among the Nati Poro tribe, a man's ure was occasionally tattooed, as was also the tongue for effect in battle. End quote. Ure is te reo for penis, but it's interesting that he mentions the tongue, as this is only referenced in one other source, so it's likely a regional thing rather than being widespread. What kind of markings you put on your body and wear was just as important as having them at all, though. For example, in males, thigh tattoos were considered chiefly, so tutua wouldn't generally have them. Tattoos on both lips and lines on the forehead were the female equivalent of this, with tattoos on the back of the legs down to the calf, space between the eyes and middle forehead always being indicative of rank in women. Slaves were generally distinguished by their moko on the back, and often didn't have facial moko. Certain tohonga may have also been forbidden from wearing moko, or at least only had minimal moko, typically around the eyes. Keep in mind that this was region-specific. Overall though, Cook, his crew, and other explorers like de Serville observed that moko was mostly restricted to the nobility. However, Elston Best would later refute this by saying that tattoos weren't restricted to rangatira or that they weren't used for identification. So either one of these is wrong, or times had changed from Cook's and de Serville's time in the late 18th century to Best's time in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. The thing is, 
kind of neither of them were wrong or right. As you find with history, and just most things in general really, the reality is a lot greyer. What I mean is, Moko could be earned, say in battle, but some markings were required to hold some sort of leadership position. Even the gender lines blurred sometimes, with women who outranked men due to ancestry, would be seen as more chiefly, and as such, be recognised with what you might call typical male moko, both facial and thighs. This would potentially show how tapu the woman is, and that she is not eligible for marriage or having children. Or at least, none that would be recognised in the Ariki line of descent, since there would be no one else who could equal her rank. If there was, that person would likely be the Ariki instead. As a side note, other Polynesian societies seem to have solved this problem through brother-sister marriage. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that the lines were so blurry, what you might call male moko couldn't even be called male specifically. It was more like chiefly moko, which really showcases that wider point, that moko was something very unique, and couldn't exactly be slotted into simple boxes. To further illustrate how unique yet interconnected moko was, Joseph Polak did a bit of an experiment. He sketched the moko of a rangatira, something which was quite common when Europeans arrived in Aotearoa, and took it to a far distant hapu about 650 kilometres or 400 miles away. This hapu was unlikely to have had any contact with the man or his family, so the experiment was whether these people he showed the sketch to could recognise who it was just by reading the moko. What he found was that they were quickly able to identify not only where he was from and what hapu he belonged to, but also his name. So although there was some regional and inter-artist difference, there was clearly some common similarities and motifs that made moko somewhat universal in being able to be read. So what are the sort of things that they were actually reading? And I say reading because that is basically what it is, reading the symbols and motifs on the skin to discern what the story is of the individual and their whakapapa. As mentioned earlier, to go through all the different motifs would be long and tedious, so I'll go over some of the things that a moko could mean. We've talked lots about whakapapa being represented in moko, and sometimes this was seen as a split in the face, one side being the father's line, and the other side being the mother's. The sort of things this could indicate was that the father was from a Wanganui tribe, as shown by some nose motifs, or that the father belonged to the female line of descent. Naturally, some designs were only for rangatera, such as generally just showing high rank, or showing that they were the first in line for a chieftainship, or that they had moved from the fourth to the third line of descent, potentially due to the death of someone, or that they had been in command in a war involving waka, which could be indicated by spiral cheek designs. Then there were all sorts of other stuff that could be shown, like mouth rays indicating they were a warrior, their association with something tapu, to indicate that they were a servant to tohonga or personal slave to a rangatira, to mark those of high rank who had been captured, particularly women, to indicate a contract made by parents to give their child to another tribe, that the right to marry had been approved, to indicate protection of the ariki or rangatira, and that this protection was a right by descent, their occupation, and so on, it goes ad infinium. Again, 
I found whole books on this dividing them through space and time. So if you are interested in learning more about what Mokko would actually show and what it looked like, you can head over to historyaotearoa.com and check out the sources page, where all the books I used to research this topic and all the other ones will be listed. Mokko also had other social functions, other than being a permanent life history of the person wearing it that they took with them everywhere. For example, there was an account that if a chief wanted another chief to join a war party, they would tattoo a potato, indicating the enemy was Māori and not Pākehā. They would then send the potato with a spliff of tobacco, representing smoke and therefore guns. The receiving chief would roast the potato and smoke the tobacco to show his acceptance that he would join the war party. Now, I do question the validity of this, as I couldn't find much in the way to support it, as it was taken from Robley's book as a second-hand source. But I think it definitely shows some of the wider uses Moko could have had post-European arrival, and perhaps even before then. The use of Moko also changed post-European arrival. Before Europeans, it was done for beauty, mana, and everything else we have discussed. However, after Europeans came to these shores, it was done as an expression of Māori culture and identity, as they started to become a minority in their own land. One of the most interesting uses of moko, though, was as a signature, and almost as heraldry. You can probably already guess how the heraldry aspect worked, as we know the symbols and motifs were often indications of a person's whakapapa, ancestry, with one person being recorded as pointing to a design on his forehead and said no one else but this family could use that design, as it was only for them, and no other were illustrious enough to use it. This might give you the idea that the more complex the moko, the more highly ranked or esteemed someone was. But that wasn't always the case. Such as in the case of the second Māori king. He had what you might consider less elaborate moko than some of his subordinate chiefs, despite the fact that he was, in theory, meant to be the top bloke. This idea of symbols as whakapapa was so ingrained into Māori culture that it was recorded that someone once asked a British officer if the coat of arms on his uniform was the moko of his family. Which, in a sense, they were correct. Coat of arms do indicate ancestry and history of the area or nation. It's one of those things I kind of find amazing in how two very different cultures on opposite sides of the planet could solve the same problem in very similar ways. I think it really highlights how we humans have much more similarities than we do differences. Their use as a signature might be less obvious though. But it makes sense when you remember that post-European arrival, Māori were trying to communicate and trade with a culture vastly different to theirs. What I mean specifically is a culture that didn't value anything that wasn't written down, especially in the realms of commerce and law, which was pretty much an antithesis of their own culture. Europeans needed paper documents to ensure any agreements, trade, land purchases, or anything else was binding and legal to the government, either local or back in Europe. And of course, you had to have a way for each person to indicate their willingness to enter the agreement on this piece of paper, and that method had to be unique to each person 
and somewhat difficult to make a forgery. Europeans solved this issue through the use of signatures. Given that most people had a unique name, that could then be written in a unique way. Māori seemed to have decided not to opt for this method, perhaps because they already had something that fit all those criteria. The very thing on their face that they carried around with them everywhere they went. So instead of writing their names, they would draw their own moko onto the paper when signing documents. The really great thing about this is that it was probably a much better system than that of writing your name. For starters, it was far more unique. Imagine how many John Smiths there are, versus how many people would have the exact same moko. I mean, you would have to have the same ancestry and have lived the exact same life to have the same moko. It would also be much more difficult to forge. The likelihood of someone remembering another person's tattoo well enough to draw it out would be rather unlikely. Probably most importantly though, it would be easy to identify the person who it belonged to. For example, if you imagine a hypothetical situation whereby you are trying to prove who a piece of land belongs to. You have the land deed with their name and the person's mark, but of course you need to figure out who that physically is because the land ownership is in dispute. If the owner was European and had signed their name, he would have to prove his identity through birth records, addresses, bank documents, and so on. He would essentially need to prove he had been using that name for most of his life, building a background of who he was. If the owner was Māori and had signed their moko, all they had to do was point to their face where the tattoo had been engraved, likely for some time. If the patterns matched, you found your man. If not, it would likely be fairly straightforward to tell that he was lying. In saying that though, just like western signatures, moko ones could range from elaborate, full recreations to just simple scribbles. What made this even more amazing is that they were often drawn completely from memory. No mirror was used at all. Which is pretty amazing when you consider that they likely didn't look at their moko all that often, given it was you know, on their face. I'll put an image up on the website of a drawing made by a chief, Tepehikupe, in 1815, who recreated his moko from memory. Moko signatures were actually so widely used that we see a number of them from Rangatira on the Treaty of Waitangi, the founding document of modern New Zealand. Tepehi, a rangatira and war leader of Ngāti Toa, an iwi based in the Lower North Island and Upper South Island, said in 1826 when he was in England, quote, Europe man, write with pen his name. Tepehi's is here, end quote. At which point he pointed at his moko. Another fun fact about Tepehi is that he was the uncle of the very famous Teroparaha. For most of you overseas, that name won't mean anything. But I'm willing to bet all of you have heard the haka he made during the musket wars. Kamate, kamate, kaura, kaura. Although we have talked about all of these really deep, interesting, spiritual, personal, practical, and social functions of moko, there is one reason that seems to kind of underlie why Māori would subject themselves to the pain of moko in all the research I've done. It just looks bloody cool! And I don't say that to diminish what moko is or what it means to people. It absolutely has a deep personal connection for many people that cannot and should not 
be diminished. I say it because it is simple things like this that I think bring us closer to those who came before us. The fact that our ancestors, or those who walked the land before we did, wanted to tattoo themselves because they thought it would make them look more awesome. It's something we do today, with tattoos, clothes, or pretty much anything else. To do something because you think it will make others look at you with awe and say, Fwoah, doesn't he look mean? is something that I find profoundly human. Next time, we will be looking at something a little different in our discussions on moko. We will be talking all about mokomokai, or as they are known today, toi moko. What are those I hear you ask? Preserved heads. We will be talking about how they were made, why they were made, and what Māori were doing with them. Bet you didn't see that one coming. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyoldteradoa at gmail.com, or Twitter at historyoldteradoa, or Facebook at historyoldteradoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch on historyoldteradoa.com, or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haritu atu, hokitu mai, see you next time. <laughs>